Hey, .NET Rocks listeners. So you never went to NDC. I get that. It's Norway. It's Oslo. But did you know that the videos for all the sessions are online? Yeah, go to vimeo.com slash NDC Oslo. You'll see some amazing sessions, and they're all right there. And if you're really curious, you can check out the lineup for NDC 2014, which is happening June 2nd through 6th. NDCOslo.com is the website, but again, if you want to check out the videos, vimeo.com, that's V-I-M-E-O dot com slash NDC Oslo. Richard and I will be there this year. Maybe we'll see you too. .NET Rocks, episode 987, with guest Vishwas Lele. Recorded Thursday, May 15th, 2014. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Uh, one more time. Hey, what's up, my friend? I'm you know, still plunking along here. Making the shows and doing the things. That's what we do. Get ready for more Speaker Idol here at TechEd. I am, uh, what am I doing? I'm writing code. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, I am. I'm working on some Connect stuff, some WPF stuff, some Blend. Working on, actually, some uh, cross-platform stuff and some speech recognition things. And I'm just having a good old time up here at Pwop Studios. Does sound like it. And the music's sort of on hold for the moment. Although... Um, Acoustic Addicts might be making a comeback. No. Yeah, I kind of got permission from uh, Rich Caruso, who he sort of uh, stopped selling guitars. That's what happened with yeah, Acoustic Yeah, Addicts. I remember. Yeah, I remember. But he sort of gave me his blessing to just go on, do whatever I want to do with it. So that's cool. Yeah, I might might uh, I got to figure out how to how to bring that back to life. But anyway, let's roll the music for Better No Framework because I got something good today. You got something good every day, buddy. What do you got today? This is an article. Uh, do you remember when we talked to James Kovacs and he explained inversion of control and then the aversion, dependency inversion and principle and dependency injection and all that stuff? Brilliantly, as I recall. Brilliantly. Well, uh, somebody has done it again, and this time, you know, in written form. If you go to uh, tinyurl.com slash IOC for all, and that's the number four. All. And, you know, we have to get creative with tiny URLs now because they've all been oh, taken. Oh, for sure. Tinyurl.com slash IOC for all. This is an absolute beginner's tutorial on dependency inversion principle, inversion of control, and dependency injection by uh, Rahul Rajat Singh. And it's from July 2013. It's gotten five stars, so many votes, prize winners... In best C sharp article of uh, 2013, or July 2013, wow. best overall article of July 2013. So the the Reader's Choice Awards kind of of code project. People really really like this. Yeah, uh, and I read it, and I, I agree. Uh, it's concise. It's easy to understand. Uh, it's simple. It'll only take you a few minutes to read, and he just lays it right out. Here is the problem. And he gives you an example, and he says, this looks totally n normal and benign, but what is the problem here? Well, the problem is, let's add a requirement. And once right. you add this requirement, oh, no, now what do I do? And, well, here's the answer. And so uh, in comes inversion of control, and then 
that uh, brings us into dependency injection and the method injection, property injection, and then IOC containers. And, and it's just, uh, it's great. It's concise. And, That's really cool, dude. Yeah. Nice find. And, you know, you can, you can learn it and read it while you're, you know, just eating breakfast. <laughs> Easy. Easy. Simple. Yeah, it All really good. is. It's not that difficult. It's really, you know, it's just not that difficult. So that's what I got okay. today. Know it, learn it, love nice it. Nice piece. Thanks. Well done. Who's talking to us today, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of, this is a sort of a random comment, but I really appreciated it actually, because it speaks to you and I doing our crazy things. This is a comment off of show 956, the one we did with uh, David Chappell talking mm-hmm. about apps and ALM and so forth. And uh, this comment is actually about a digression. This is from Andrew Stutz, who says, As always, I enjoyed this show. I was interested in the tangent you guys took regarding 3D printers, mm-hmm. which led to a discussion of the additive manufacturing process to create clothing. Yeah. I could see this becoming a new business model. For example, companies could give away 3D clothing printers and charge for materials and patterns. Now, instead of buying a designer label shirt, you would just buy the pattern or print one off yourself or maybe two or three in different colors. Why go to a store when you can print it at home? What a great time to be in tech. And, you know, what's funny about this is this conversation has been going on for a while around the 3D printers that, if, you know, ultimately the product itself will be irrelevant. The people will charge for the design. We have, uh, we have those. They're called sewing machines. Well, yeah. And the funny part, of course, is that your home sewing machine, it's very difficult to make as good a clothing as industrial sewing machines. Yeah, of course. I think the same thing is true of 3D printers, just like the same thing happened with dot matrix printers or, or inkjet printers. You know, the professional printing equipment make prints a better document than the printer at home. Well, what he's really talking about isn't a sewing machine, but an automatic sewing machine, something that you feed clothing in, you know, cloth in one side and pants come out the other side, right? And well, those I don't are, even see. It, it those might are just big be thread. It may be weaving on the fly. Yeah. You know, it doesn't necessarily have, it makes no sense to have the cloth do the traditional clothing manufacturing method of cutting cloth and sewing it together. I, Why you not know, just extrude a finished item? And my first reaction to that, and, and I said this before, is that's a whole lot of manufacturing from a whole lot of raw materials that for a product that you can buy at Walmart for five bucks. Right. You know? Yeah, but only if you're prepared to do all the things that Walmart has to do to get it done that way. I understand exactly that point, yes. And I'm not convinced at all that the home machines will ever make as good a product as commercial products either. Mm, Yeah. But uh, but it, it, it does also press on this whole idea of patterns as the asset or designs as the asset versus the product itself well that's it and i've said that many times that uh you know in the land of star trek replicators the designs and the patterns are the software of the future and so designers of today are the programmers of tomorrow but at the same time i think people have a tough time valuing a design you know how how do you set the price on that yeah because the, the the duplication of it is trivial you know, well, and so it's, it's the same way. There's still we, a lot of problems here. There are a lot of problems, and it's the same way we devalue the intellectual property of music or or anything digital or anything on the web. Yep. 
But either way, it definitely stimulated some conversation and thought, and it, it helps me uh, to remind myself that we still haven't done an additive manufacturing geek out yet. Right. Let's so do it. It's on the list. We'll get there. Yep. So, Andrew, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8. We've got them for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone 7 and 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to diatomenterprises.com. And that brings us to our guest. Vishwas Lele is a longtime MVP and uh, Azure developer and regional director and has been on .NET Rocks before and a good friend. Welcome back, Vishwas. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for being here. Um, man, I can't even remember what we talked about the last time you were on. It's been so long. Oh, we, we talked about uh, SharePoint apps. Oh, that's right. SharePoint apps. So um, now we're talking about all sorts of stuff, enterprise cloud, Azure in the enterprise. And uh, Azure Pack, I know, is a, is a big thing. You probably have a lot to talk about there. But where, where, where should we start this conversation today? So, Carl, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about uh, how Azure can fit into the enterprise. And up until now, uh, you know, a lot of companies have clearly looked at cloud for the workloads that makes most sense for the cloud. So you're trying to build a website or you have a, a you know an application that needs to broadcast a message to a million devices. You have an application that has to handle peak loads at predictable times or unpredictable times. You know, there's a fancy word that people use to describe these kinds of workloads. They call them the, the born in the cloud applications. So going to the cloud for those obviously makes sense. I was hoping to talk to you today about how you can take some of the characteristics of the public cloud and how can you apply it uh, within the context of an enterprise and specifically how does Azure stand up against these characteristics? You know, what does it provide? How can you think about those things? So I was hoping we would have a conversation about that. Okay. You know, when I think about enterprise cloud, I think of the friction there, which is really not the technology. The technology is amazing. But as we discovered in our talk with uh, with uh, Christian Weyer, the real problem comes uh, is political and security-wise, right? I mean, we have political problems with countries uh, in, uh, where data must exist, Um that that cause friction, and we have security issues that uh, prevent companies from moving their data into the cloud. And if the data is not in the cloud, why why have the apps in the cloud? Um, so so those are some real problems that uh, that enterprises face. What what's the current state of that? So, Carl, that's absolutely right. I mean, that is that is number one: the security and compliance is an important concern. You talk to CIOs or IT directors, and they've, of course, been watching this advent of the cloud and the, the born in the cloud applications, and they're looking at this and saying, how can I apply this? And of course, there are challenges like the security and compliance. Now, all of these public cl cloud providers and, and Windows Azure, certainly, they've worked hard. I mean, they've made billions of investments, billions of dollars worth of investments, so they've worked hard to achieve these various compliance standards, which can alleviate some of the concerns that these people have. So you can go to something like the Windows Azure Trust Center site, and it will tell you 
what kinds of security and compliance standards are available. And, and this is a fast moving thing. So compliance like the HIPAA compliance or PCI compliance is probably the latest one. And then if you are working with state and federal agencies, then there's something called the FedRAMP, which is almost a requirement for you to do any government work in the United States. So these providers and Windows Azure is now has a FedRAMP compliance, not just for the data centers based in the US, but data centers all across the world, because you know the way they do this is the same team, the global foundation services team manages all of the data centers. So it makes sense for them to achieve the compliance at that level. And then by virtue of that, apply to all of their data centers. So they've certainly done an enormous amount of work to achieve this compliance. But going back to your previous point, the problem is not just technological, the problem is not just security, which of course has to be considered. The problem is also about the friction. Uh, do you have the right skill set? The people working in the IT department, have, are, are they looking at the cloud? Are they interested in automating some of the tasks that are done manually today? What about uh, taking your existing applications and they are running on a certain hardware and a certain memory configuration. How do you map that to the cloud? Because you know you are used to this complete flexibility and control. How do you apply that to the public cloud where you may not have some of that? So those are some of the other challenges. And then uh, you know the other sort of challenge that that I've I've seen many people run into is very specifically related to networking. So data centers have been around for many, many years. And as a result, a lot of these networking capabilities, whether we are talking about specifically defining your subnets, very specific uh, you know, security policies around your subnet, your very specific routing rules, they're used to doing all of these things in your data center. And if you try to take this and map this to a public cloud, whether it is Azure or, or name another public cloud, AWS or Google, you will run into those challenges because you're talking about now software-based networking, essentially. So you may not have the fine gain control that you're used to having. And so you have to sort of think about what can you move to the cloud and does it meet my needs? And then look at the roadmap and see what other changes are coming as you think about what enterprise applications you can move to the cloud. But there's always this battle of, I mean, there's this psychological thing about, I don't want my data out of my data center. I mean, it, I almost feel like all the security compliance and so forth, their excuses for this visceral, I don't want my data out of my data center. That's right. Or, or our clients demand it. I mean, they're, they're just, it just may not be an option. That is true, Carl. But uh, if you look at what is happening, I, th I think some of those concerns are being alleviated. Now, there are certain uh, situations where you will never do that, right? But I mean, if you, there's a big story last year where uh, CIA actually has a signed a deal with AWS and, you know, there was this confusion about what kind of a, of a cloud uh, infrastructure that was, was it a public or a private enclave that's built for CIA? But nevertheless, it indeed was an important uh, announcement in any case, whether it was a private or a public cloud, but for the fact that an agency like CIA to go to a vendor and say that we want you to run our enterprise workload 
should say something. Yeah, that's amazing. And and what is also happening? I was just just working um, with another company, uh, a law firm, and and they're obviously concerned about all of this. And as you're thinking about the cloud, they want to make sure that their security tenants and they have very stringent security tenants. Everything that um, all the data in motion is encrypted, all the data at rest is encrypted, and this was related to SharePoint. So even things like the search index that the SharePoint search create should be protected and we use BitLocker to protect it and all of those things. So if someone is willing to really apply the public cloud infrastructure and look at all the security uh, knobs and switches that are available and look at the compliance that is possible, I think there's a reasonable story to be made there. Uh, I'm sure there are a few workloads will never get there, but I think that story is changing quite rapidly in the last year or so. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it definitely, it, it, there's no substitute for success either. Like actually seeing companies showing a competitive advantage by doing this. They're spending less on their infrastructure. They're getting more scalable, better results. Like that, that to me seems to be the real cornerstone of, of, uh, you know, what, what's going to make people do this is I, I still get back to this visceral response of, okay, you're afraid, but you're greedy too. You know, you want the win as well. Right. You, you don't want to miss out the competitive advantage and that's going to overwhelm everything else. And, and Richard, that's a, that's a great point that uh, that you want to lower your costs. What we are also finding is that the if you try to do a, a total cost of ownership or a TCO calculation, first of all, that calculation is very difficult to do because uh, yes, you can figure out you know run some kind of a tool, and Microsoft has a tool called Map. You run that tool within your on-premises data center. It will tell you how many machines you have, how much CPU utilization they are incurring and things like that. And now you take right. this and you, you plug this into something like an Azure calculator and you can get what would be the cost of running an equivalent application in the public cloud. So machine to machine, storage to storage network probably is fine, but then the things get very interesting because, hey, I've already paid for this hardware and I'm not going to turn this off and move to the cloud. What about the salaries of the people who manage this? How do I break that up? And by the way, this machine is not just supporting this application. It is also supporting a bunch of other applications. So how do you go about doing this calculation? That's challenge number one. Challenge number two is that the cost argument in the public cloud is not going to be a slam dunk in all situations. In fact, you will find that you have to pay slightly more. I was giving this example of the law firm. You have to pay more because now you're encrypting the data. SharePoint farm, which was within your data center, all of the nodes that were making up the SharePoint farm did not need to use HTTPS between the for the inter-node communication. But if you're in the cloud and you're being cautious, you want to have that communication go over HTTPS as well. So now there is this added latency because of this additional security framework that you have put in place. So the cost may not be a slam dunk argument, the bigger argument, as you said, Richard, is what is the agility benefit? And that's harder for people to calculate. You know, right. you, your developer came to you and asked for a machine because they wanted to try out this alternate approach. And you told them no machine is available for six weeks. 
And that one change could have made a big difference in the end product. Yes. So that agility calculation has to be factored in. One of the Richard's points there was, you know, they're, they're greedy too. And the, the costs, uh, we're talking about cost savings. What about features? Are there features? I mean, the features of being in the cloud, obviously, that, that are compelling. But are there features in the cloud that aren't necessarily related to just their cloudiness that you don't have on site? That's a, that's a good point, uh, Carl, that there are features that uh, that are available. And, and I'm trying to be careful about your question. You're saying, what are the features in the cloud? Not necessarily about the cloudiness, which is, you yeah. know, the scalability and, you know, per minute billing and things. Yeah. Like and that. I guess what I'm saying is, is, is Microsoft pouring more resources into uh, Azure, let's say, than they are into Windows, uh, you know, Windows Server. In other words, is, is Azure going to get features that Windows Server won't get that could that it could get? That that's a very interesting point. Now I now exactly follow what you're asking, Carl. That is indeed the case. In fact, Microsoft has been on record sub for for a while now that they are a service first. They're following a service first approach, which means new features will get added to a cloud based offering and then will be applied to an on premises offering. And there are a number of examples I can cite. Just look at the Azure Service Bus, for example. Mm. Azure Service Bus. Uh, which is, of course, the service bus based on Microsoft Azure, has a high cadence, maybe several releases in a year. And if you look at it, an equivalent offering, which is the Windows service bus, that has a cadence of released once in a year. So mm -hmm. you can see where the innovation is happening. Same is true if you look at, uh, if you were at the SharePoint conference, if you look there, there are a number of features that are coming to the online version of SharePoint which will make their way, hopefully, to the on-premises version, if there is one in, in the next few years. But that is an important point, that certainly the focus of innovation seems to be the, the cloud, and many of those features are then ending up back into the non-premises product. So that's an important point to consider. Mm -hmm. for, for the CIOs, that I, I also want to tap into this new features and innovation, then I need to be in a place which puts me to take advantage of these features that are coming out. Right. I mean, you're always going to be in that meeting where somebody says, yeah, but Windows Server can do that. I mean, you got to have a compelling reason other than, you know, the, the technology. Right. And, and um, Carl, if I may expand your question a little bit and actually talk about Azure Pack, if that's fine right now. So yeah. I, I don't want to sound like, you know, this is uh, an either or uh, either you do it in Azure or you do it on, on Windows. Right. What Azure Pack is really offering, and that's that's a very interesting technology for people who've, who've not had a chance to look into this. So think of Azure Pack as collection of a subset of Azure technologies that are available for you to be installed on premises. And it turns out that they've extended this story to hosters as well. So there was an announcement a few months back where many hosters sort of signed on to this announcement as well, and they would support that. So the, so you would have essentially a unified, consistent experience. Now, not for every feature, of course, but for that subset of that capability, you would have a unified, consistent experience, whether you're running on-premises or you're running an application with a hoster or you're running in the public cloud. Now, what does Azure Pack mean really? So 
if you uh, today, of course, the virtualization is available to you on premises. Most organizations are doing that. So let's say you're using Hyper-V as your virtualization technology. Then you are typically using something like uh, a virtual machine manager to go and provision your machines in that manner. And that's no, no news for, for most of the most of your listeners. What Azure Pack brings to the table is, so when you work with Windows, Microsoft Azure, and sorry, it'll take me some time to take into account the branding change that happened. Windows right, Azure right. is now Microsoft Azure. <laughs> you and me yeah. both, buddy. <laughs> hey, it changes, you know, it's par for the course. At right, least, so, at least uh, it's concise. At least it's concise. So I'm, I'm just going to say, say just Azure. So if you if you want to work with Azure-based resources, there's a there's this concept of a service management API, and you can it's basically a REST API. You can go to that API and say, give me a machine, give me a storage, or give me a network. And what they've done is they've tried to build the same API on premises. So once they have the same API on premises. Then they went to teams like the virtual man, virtual machine manager and other system center products. And they said, you should take a dependence on this API, which is equivalent to the Azure API. So now you have a consistent, and I don't want to say that's a mirror image. It is designed to be consistent. So there may be some differences, but you can essentially, let's say, have a PowerShell script, which can work in the two environments. So I can go get myself a machine on premises or I can go get myself a machine in Azure. And on top of that, most people who work with Azure are familiar with the Azure portal. So you can go in and provision a machine for yourself, much as you can do through the API. And turns out that Azure Pack provides you a portal experience, which is very similar. Anybody who's played with the Azure Pack portal will realize that this looks exactly like the Azure public portal. The only difference is that you have two flavors there. And that's very interesting. You have an admin portal. So you can say, you know, this HR group, and let's take a better example, uh, this uh, marketing group uh, within my company, let me just create a plan for them and let me assign them a certain number of cores. And once I have done that and let me assign these users to this plan, I can then go into a tenant portal and I will now have the same experience as the Azure public portal and I will be able to provision my machines from there. And then I'll be subjected to the quota that was applied to that plan. So now you're beginning to see there that there's a unified experience, if you will, between uh, doing things on premises. And this actually goes back to the discussion that we were having earlier, Carl, that now as a CIO, you could say that, oh, you're going to be working on this application, which has a classification of highly restricted, let's say, then you should be provisioning this machine. The script is the same, but these machines should be based on premises. Oh, this application that you're going to be working on, and it does not have the same security classification, and maybe it is unclassified. And then I can just simply provision this machine in Azure. So I can I have the flexibility. And this goes back to, let me tie this to our, where we began this conversation, was Having this kind of flexibility is an important part for, for enterprises who are looking to see the public cloud. And as I said earlier, they're not just going to move all their, their workloads to the cloud. They want essentially an extension of their data center in the cloud. So they want to retain what they have. Most of the equipment has already been paid for. There's no reason to get rid of that. But all new requests 
for infrastructure can go into this virtual data center. And I think that that part, and with that comes things like, I want to be able to provision these machines in Azure, but I want to treat them as extensions of my data center. So I want to be able to project my IP address range to the cloud so that you know I, I, there's consistency in how I assign them IP addresses. I want my machines in the cloud to be domain joined with the same domain that my on-premises machines are joined with. So, I, so these kinds of capabilities are becoming important as as uh, you think about Azure in the enterprise. And many of these things are obviously possible today, and new capabilities keep coming with every iteration. Yeah, yeah, I can see how yeah, that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as far as workloads go. I mean, the, the, we, we've been talking about the benefits of the cloud to the developer. I don't know as if we need to even go over how awesome this is, but I mean, um, we, we have to. I mean, this is a developer show. But uh, it seems like it, Azure is such a no-brainer for developers just because it's so great. But what are some of the cool things that Mr. Guthrie has uh, bestowed on us lately? No, that's that's great. So, so Carl, uh, uh, absolutely. From a developer's perspective, you have these SDKs and APIs, and you know you can uh, continuous integration with GitHub. You can use Node.js. You know all the technologies that are gaining ground, and developers love love these. Now, the Mr. CIO is asking them, okay, this is great, but can you give me some concrete examples of where I can apply this hybrid cloud business that you're talking about? How can I apply it? To what I do every day. And uh, some of the workloads that I've been seeing in my work with, with enterprises in the last six months or so are, are the following. The dev and test, which of course should come as no surprise, does not have the same security and compliance requirement. Your developers want these machines. So think of a scenario, I check in my code, a nightly build happens, and I then take my nightly build and go provision a, a set of machines, maybe my app tier, my web tier, my databases. I take that nightly build, go deploy it to that test server and send an email out to my test team that this nightly build is deployed, go test it. And once they are done, we, I can tear down this environment because I don't want to pay for any extra minutes that I'm not using the infrastructure. So dev and test is one. An extension of dev and test, which is also becoming very interesting, is load testing. And, you know, we have all waited for a certain development cycle to complete and then start the load testing at the end only to find some significant issues which cause us to refactor our design. Now, with yep. the load test... Been there. I've certainly been there more times uh, than, than I would like to admit. But load testing service is, is very interesting. And I think it's becoming one of the, one of the popular services there because... What you can do is, I just described to you, I have this nightly build, I deploy it to a test machine, and then I basically set up a load test, which will go load test against my application, and I can run it nightly if I want to. And then in addition to the load testing service, there is a companion service called the App Insight. So while you're subjecting the load, and you can say how many virtual users you want, you also want to be able to... Uh, monitor the health of the application itself. So were there methods that were running slow? What performance counters am I monitoring? 
So I want to have a full view of this, not just the load test, but also how my application is doing when this load test was subjected. So this whole scenario of dev test, load testing, and then app insight is very interesting. And we were certainly doing that for our customers. In addition, companies want public facing websites, of course, or, or they're doing extra net collaboration with their partners. That's another use case. You talked about, uh, Carl, earlier, you talked about can what are the other capabilities in the cloud that beyond that cloudiness? And here's one example I can give you. So there's something called the okay. BizTalk service, Carl. BizTalk? Sorry. BizTalk Biz service. BizTalk, BizTalk, BizTalk. I know I've heard that somewhere before. Where have <laughs> so, I, you know, where have I is, heard BizTalk? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. So, it was 1990-something. Uh, wait a minute. It's coming back to me here. Oh. No, right. this is BizTalk you speak of. I'm sorry. BizTalk uh, was very was very popular, and I suppose it still is in certain circles. But tell us, for those who haven't been around for a long time, what BizTalk is. So, so BizTalk is this Microsoft's, uh, you know, integration engine. Uh, by the last count, it has hundred plus connectors. If you want to connect your 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 uh, .NET application with SAP or JD Edwards or, or some other system, it has a connector for, for, for all of that. It provides you pub-sub capabilities. It provides you uh, ability to transform these messages. It allows you the ability to write these custom functions that can transform these messages. So it has been their core integration engine for a number of years, and you're right, from 90s, on and it has done quite well if you look at the numbers it is being used by a large portion of fortune 1000 companies you know for doing doing just that you know this integration but there's a very interesting story about bestock services which I'll very quickly narrate and then I'll come back to the point I was trying to make so back in um, 2008 or 2009 time frame microsoft announced even before azure was announced there was a service called bestock services and uh, the idea there was that that was sort of the first foray into the cloud and you could do things like relay. You could also do things like workflow at that time. And uh, of course, those capabilities that got folded into Azure Service Bus in the 2009-2010 timeframe. And then last year, BizTalk Services was re-announced, I should say. And this time it was announced as a truly as a service equivalent of the BizTalk product that had existed in the 90s. Now, not all capabilities that are available in the BizTalk server are available in BizTalk services, but an important capability, and this brings back to the point that I was trying to make earlier. So today, if you look at BizTalk services, and by the way, this is GA capability, there's something called the EDI processing, and if you are an organization who's exchanging EDI messages with your partners, you really don't need to set up all of that infrastructure that you had to previously. You can come in and, you know, create a subscription into the BizTalk services component. And uh, you can define your message schemas. You can define what kind of X12 messages you want, what kind of transformation you want. And basically, start exchanging messages with your partners without having to set up all of that infrastructure. Now, one thing I didn't mention is BizTalk was great, great capabilities, but it required a fair amount of expertise in installing and man managing that and sort of using that as a service, albeit right now, not all capabilities, not all connectors are available, but 
the things that are available, it certainly simplifies that scenario. So messaging, I would say, is an important workload. So this talk services provides that. And of course, I have to say Azure Service Bus provides you great capabilities where you can do queuing or you can do topics and subscriptions. And you you probably know this since, since Richard, you and Carl, you do a fair amount of SharePoint. Probably interesting to mention that if you've installed SharePoint 2013 on-premises, under the covers, the workflows run on top of the Windows Service Bus. Hmm. If you're doing workflows in Office 365, under the covers, they're all running on the Azure Service Bus. Nice. So that's that's an important scenario there as well. And, and the last scenario, last two scenarios, uh, and then please stop me if I'm extending your question there. No, not at all. Okay, so the, the last two scenarios that I would I'd like to uh, highlight here, if I may, is the storage scenario. So you may get into a situation where a CIO may say that I don't want to run any applications in the cloud. I am fine with all the infrastructure within my data center. And the only thing I'm looking at is maybe the cheap storage that is available in the cloud and the price seems to keep dropping. So I want to take advantage of that and I don't want to do anything else. And uh, there are some interesting possibilities there. One is there is uh, a company that Microsoft acquired called Store Simple. They have a very nice appliance. You can drop that appliance within your on-premises network and you can turn some dials. And what it does is based on the usage of the data, and you can say this data is considered stale, it will then encrypt that data and move that data to the cloud. So nice. you don't you are not actively managing that yourself. Yeah, very nice. And what is very interesting also is your data is not only encrypted, not all aspects of your data are just moved. So in fact, there's this concept of fingerprints within store uh, simple that they take certain elements of your data and move it to the cloud. So if somebody got hold of your storage account in the cloud, they won't be able to recreate that data. So it you know, gives you that added protection. Basically drop this appliance, start writing to it, and it can then take the data that is less used or less often used and move it to the cloud. That's one. The, the other scenario that I, at least one instance I've talked to a customer about is the disaster recovery scenario. And uh, this is a scenario where, uh, well, I am happy running my applications here, but really the disaster recovery uh, instance is costing me too much. And frankly, even though it is costing me too much, I have never really tested it. And I'm paying a lot. What can you do for me? Well, you, you can uh, replicate your information uh, to the cloud. You can, for example, you can install a data protection manager uh, for your virtual machines that may be running on-premises and, and take that data, move that data to the cloud. And just if you have an outage within your data center, you can uh, go up to the Windows Azure, Microsoft Azure data center and provision those machines and be up and running pretty quickly. And then you can leave those machines running for the time the outage lasts and then you can come back into your data center. So that's that's another uh, important scenario that we see there. And one capability that exists, so if, if your listeners are worried about, you know, how much will it take me to ship this data to the cloud? And then what happens a week later, I want to bring this data back. And uh, even though there's no cost to bringing data into an Azure data center, there is cost to bringing the data out. So you can take advantage of the import export service where you 
basically FedEx them the disk with your data on it. They can load that data into their data center. You can provision machines based on that. And then when you're ready to bring that data back, you can say, hey, please FedEx me those tapes or you know those hard drives back to me so I have my latest copy of my data there. Yeah, very cool. What is the uh, Unified Tooling System Center app controller? So yeah, uh, um, that goes back to one of the characteristics that I was talking about. Uh, Mr. CIO or Mr. Director of IT is also worried about not just security and compliance and all of those things that we have talked about up until now. They're worried about how am I going to manage these machines? It's great that you know, with the touch of a button, you're able to provision this machine in the cloud. You can domain join this machine with your existing domain. But how about the management cost? You know, I follow a certain process of how I do endpoint protection of these machines. How do I do backup? Now, what's going to happen to that? Do I need to use two different set of tools? How do I go about doing that? And uh, what System Center team has done, if you look at the releases in the last one year, a lot of their new functionality is focused on giving you the single pane of glass management, whether it is on-premises or the cloud. So you can go into things like App Controller and it can, you know, it can give you the view of the machines in the cloud. You can um, look at, and we are talking about infrastructure as a service. We have not even talked about platform as a service, which is, which is a different discussion. But in infrastructure as services discussion, we still have to be worried about uh, is the virus protection on? Is the latest security patch applied? Are the hotfixes applied? I still have to worry about those things. And my organization may have a very specific policy about that. And turns out that this unified management can allow me to give me a you know, single pane of glass view. I can apply this endpoint protection across my machines on-premises or in Azure. I'll get a report saying, these machines are non-compliant and why are they non-compliant and things like that. So their ability to manage these, these machines so truly becomes an extension of your data center is important. And that's what I was talking about in terms of the unified tooling there. So what about the regulatory uh, regimes and how they actually affect using the cloud? I mean, HIPAA is one of them. That's only healthcare, isn't it? That's correct. That's correct. But uh, let, me, let me describe how you would go about building a HIPAA-compliant application in Azure. And uh, the same sort of process or steps you can follow for other compliance standards as well. So first and foremost, uh, this is this is not legal advice. I should, you know, I think I should say that caveat and you, you need to talk to your lawyers. And somebody was telling me that no advice is considered legal until you've paid for it. So right. Uh, so uh, the, uh, I will give you my sort of uh, uh, view of how you would go about implementing a HIPAA compliant uh, application, and then you can you can apply that to other standards. So if you look at the HIPAA standards and if you look at the documentation, it says that if you are handling any patient data, then you must comply with these standards, and it's not just a verbal thing you must sign a written document that you will comply with these standards and that document is often known as the BA or the Business Associate Agreement. Right. And the way it works is the BAA is hierarchical. So your application consists of the app tier, your code, your data, 
And then below that are the virtual machines, the storage, the networking. And below that are people where uh, people who are managing it, the physical data center stuff, the access stuff. And, 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 and beyond that, it could, could be other, other things that apply to a data center. So when you are signing, when you're saying that your application is, is HIPAA compliant, you are talking about all of these things in the hierarchy, all the way from the app to data, to OS, to virtual machines, to networkings, to storage, to data center, all the way through. Now, if you hosted that application within your building or your data center, you're responsible for all aspects of the stack yourself. What Microsoft is providing you there is they're saying that the physical access part, the virtual machine, the networking, and the storage, we have already gone through a HIPAA certification for that. And we are willing so to So just assign, by using their service, you're compliant? By using their service, you're compliant, and they are willing to sign a BAA, and there are some conditions about, you know, they're willing to sign with for volume customers and things like that. That's just an aside. But they're willing to sign a BAA for their aspects of the stack. Now, since this is hierarchical, you still have to say that you have not left uh, a gaping hole in your web page or your yeah. how the code is written. So you have to sign a, hip, a BAA for your portion of of the story or the stack, and they would give it. So, but you, as you can still see, now your responsibility and then your exposure to risk has been reduced by a certain percentage because somebody else is willing to sign the BA for the remaining portions. And this right. exactly the same thing applies for other standards as well. And, uh, Which, you know, I was recently building, Richard, uh, an application for a state agency. And uh, after this application was built, and before the application is ready for production, in fact, I was just doing this this last two months, they hired an ethical hacking company to hack the application that we had built as the last step before that application could go into production. So right, that company right. came in and you know we gave them the endpoints of our Azure hosted application. The company applied an ethical hack and then, interestingly, the company said, well, okay, so we have, we have done this testing, we have done cross-site scripting, we have done this, and uh, they did find one thing which we had to fix. So I don't want to sound like everything was perfect. But then they said something else. They said, well, we now want to run an intrusion detection test on your application. And uh, we said, well, this is hosted on Azure. And it turns out that you can go to the Azure portal and fill out a form and tell Microsoft that an ethical hack company is going to hack your application and they are going to do an intrusion test. Wow. And then Microsoft will say, fine, please give us your IP, give us their IP address range from which the test will be coming. And oh, wow. by the way, do, the, do that next Tuesday between 12 and 3 Eastern Standard Time. That's cool. Wow, that's, that is cool. It took us about four or five days to get that permission. I handed that permission back to the ethical hack company. They ran the intrusion test. And, you know, the details are not clear. You know, Microsoft or any cloud provider will not tell you, oh, we saw this and we did this. And we, they're not going to tell you how they handled it. But, right. Uh, but the ethical hack company gave us fine. You know, this test was fine. And so uh, I think you have to consider all of these things together. Uh, mm. There, there is nothing called 100% uh, assurance and 100% security as we see. Somebody will find something there. and uh, But 
I think you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. You have to look at the roadmap. You have to look at what compliance features are available. And frankly, you also have to look at what else you can do within your application to protect your data, whether you are encrypting it yourself, you are, uh, you know, to prevent a, a denial of service attack, maybe you have uh, multiple instances available, or maybe you have a copy of your application available in another data center. So those are kinds of things that you can do on yourself to mitigate that possibility. So Right. But, and you know, I've been through audits before, and part of this is just showing good intent. You know, you've done the best you can. You've you've assessed all the services. Like that's a, that goes a long way. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so and, I got to think having Microsoft signature on, yeah, we support this solution. That's pretty powerful stuff. Yep, yep. And 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 doing it in a manner where there's a joint partnership. Ultimately, you're responsible for your app and data, but they are willing to sign it for their portion. I think I think says a lot. Yes, absolutely. That is definitely part of the battle. But the more I find with auditors, the more different eyes you can show that were on this and didn't poo-poo it and said, yes, they've done it right, the better off you are. Absolutely. So cost is obviously very attractive when it comes to the cloud, but, you know, it can add up. What What's the real story with costs? Are there hidden costs? And you did mention this before uh, a little bit, but let's dive into costs a little bit. Yes. Uh, so, so, Carl, uh, the cost is the cost calculation, as I said earlier, can be quite elusive and you have to be very careful. First of all, as I said, in not in all cases, there is going to be a benefit in moving to the cloud. It can't be a, it, it is not a slam dunk in all situations. Number one, the benefit of going to the cloud will come into picture when you're able to turn off resources that are not being used. And that's the important part. And that requires automation. And that's often the challenge that I run into. If you, if you talk to uh, an enterprise IT shop and say that, can you uh, automate this aspect? And they would say, well, why are you trying to automate this? I build the server and the server is then put into production or, or test and that server remains in use till we deprecate it or we replace it with a better hardware. Why are you asking me to automate this? And the, the important thing to note is to be successful in the public cloud, I think automation is the key and, and it's not something I came up with. If you look at uh, all of the cloud visionaries, they'll tell you if there was one mantra of cloud success, that's automation. And you can use third-party products like Chef and Puppet that Microsoft Azure is now supporting, as we saw in Build. Or you right. could be a PowerShell shop and you could be writing these automated scripts. So why is this important? It's important because now you have per-minute billing so that, uh, you know, previously there was some concern about, you know, I bring up a machine at 11.55 and then I shut it down at 12.10. Now, I have used this machine only for 15 minutes, but I'm now paying for two hours of time because the granularity is 60 minutes. So that was changed to a per-minute billing. So we should take advantage of that. So if you have a test instance that is not being used, the test team is not using it, by all means, shut it down. That's, that's really, really important. Even on a production system, if you're finding that, uh, let's say SharePoint, 
uh, you are finding that you, this is a nighttime usage is low. Maybe you can bring down the number of web front ends down to a minimum and then bring them back up when the workday begins. So automation is key. The other thing that you have to also do is, and some third-party products are beginning to emerge there, is they can do some analysis on your bill and tell you that here is a more cost-effective way of running the same workload. Should you really be running three virtual machines of this size when you can really get it by with two virtual machines of a different size? You know, that kind of analysis is becoming uh, more important. And I think people should pay attention to that because it's not obvious how you uh, do the costing because we have, we have never really traditionally done that. We have bought our machines. We have, we have tried to get the best discounts possible. And we've tried to bank on the fact that the prices will keep continuing to go down. But we've really not tried to model that. And Google had a very interesting announcement, Carl, about that when Google there made their infrastructure service announcement almost a month back. Hmm. So today uh, on Azure and on Amazon, you can get a benefit in terms of cost if you give them a longer term contract. And it's called reserved instances in AWS. And a similar concept applies in Azure as well. And it makes sense. You, you say that you're going to be using the server for a prolonged period of time. And they say, fine, we will give you a discount. But that becomes quite complicated. You almost have to manage a spreadsheet and say, I bought this and I'm going to be paying this for two years and the cost is going to drop. And when should I be buying more capability and things like that? And Google made a very interesting announcement where they came up with something called the sustained usage pricing, where you don't have any long-term contracts at all. When your usage reaches a threshold of, let's say, 25%, your per-minute cost or per-hour cost will go down automatically and then go further down when you reach the 50% threshold. So you really don't have a long-term contract or a spreadsheet to manage. So those are some of the thoughts that I want to leave your listeners with, that automation is key. Make sure you turn off the machines that you don't need. Think about cost as an important aspect of your design. And we've not done, done that again traditionally. Does it make sense to design this application? I think cost-based design, I think, is a fancy word that people have used. But what it right. fundamentally means is you have to be cognizant of what it is going to cost. And because we have this ability to dynamically vary our applications, we don't have to make all of those decisions. You know, I don't have to just make an assumption that database is going to be a bottleneck. So let's just buy these big machines because I know database is going to be a problem. I have the ability to change that. Once my application starts getting usage, I can then monitor my application, figure out my usage pattern and scale the part of the application that needs scaling. And those are some of the strategies to make sure that you make optimal use of your cloud-based resources. Is there such a thing as a uh, a calculator? You know, the usage calculator or price calculator? There is, where I there can, is one, yeah. one on the Microsoft site and, you know, you can plug in the numbers and it'll tell you exactly how much your monthly bill will be. And uh, as I said earlier, you can run a tool, tool called Map within your on-premises. Run that, it'll right, tell you how right. many machines and then use that information to come up and do a forecast of your Azure-based bill. Most of the benefit uh, price-wise seems to be on the front end too, doesn't it? I mean, because that's, you know, it's because it's usage-based. When, you, when you're starting out, you're uh, not using a lot of resources, and so you can develop very quickly. But as those resources come into use, that's when 
that's when it starts adding up. That is right. Uh, Carl, my perspective is that the biggest benefit, and I can say this from my own personal experience, is the biggest benefit is agility. Of course, mm-hmm. you must do everything to reduce the cost. You have to be responsible for the amount of money you're spending with any public cloud provider. Mm-hmm. But to me, the biggest benefit at the end of the day is agility. I can't give you the amount, number of instances where in the last year or 18 months, we've been able to... Uh, you're building an application, an MVC application, or you're writing, um, even doing a SharePoint-based development or something else, ability to go deploy it and send a link to your customer early so that they can take a quick look, even if they're outside your security boundaries, you know, they, they can quickly look at the application, give you feedback. Uh, you realize that you're not sure about this design. Can you set up, clone your machine, change something? send that URL out to people, all of that friction that existed that took up days for us to, you know, bring this to the our customers and our users has can be flattened. And there is no dollar amount you can put to that. But I think if I look back at uh, the, the things that, that I've done, my team have done in the last 12 months or 18 months, I think that benefit outweighs any cost savings that we may have achieved just by moving to the public cloud. Well said, Vishwas. Thanks very much for spending this hour with us. Thank you for the opportunity, Carl and Richard. Thank you. You bet. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got